Our reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, reading from verse 50 through to chapter 24, verse 12. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home, marveling at what had happened. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we, as we gather again before your word and under your word, we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would challenge our hearts where they need challenging, that you would give us joy in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Just in the centre of the service sheet, you'll see uh, just a, a brief outline of where we're going this morning. Uh, tomb located, tomb vacated, tomb doubted, but then confirmed. What can save humanity? 
That's the question that we've been thinking about over the last few weeks in our series in Luke's Gospel leading up to Easter. What can save humanity? The question needs a little bit more clarity, doesn't it, before we can answer it. Save humanity from what? And there are lots of answers that people might give to that question. What are the threats to humanity? Well, some would say climate change, ecological threat. David Attenborough said recently uh, just as much as that. He said it was the biggest threat in in thousands of years. And it certainly is having a huge impact on our world, on life in our world. Or perhaps social issues, racism, sexism, inequality. It's been brought to our attention in recent days, and these things are tearing at the fabric of Western society. But serious as those threats are, and they are, there is one threat that's been front and centre for the last year, hasn't there? The great threats to humanity of death. It's been pretty hard to ignore, though we'd very much like to. We've seen the daily briefings, we've seen the daily figures of national and global death rates, this many sick, this many dead, in our nation and across the world. Like a drumbeat in our ears, day after day after day, for over a year, death has been pounding away, signalling its threatening intent to us all. And yet we find, as we come to this Easter, that the drumbeat has perhaps moved into the distance a little bit. Vaccines helped with that. It sort of muffled the sound. And we're truly thankful for that. But actually, if you listen closely enough, that beat goes on. Third waves and variants, not to mention all the normal things which make our lives so fragile. Death is the one threat that we all face with absolute certainty that it will come our way in the end. Pale death beats equally at the poor man's gate and at the palaces of kings. What will save humanity from death? That's the big question. It's the big question of our world. It's the big question of our hearts. And it's the big question of the Bible. The Bible teaches that human beings are made in the image of God and made to live for eternity. And yet we've rebelled against God, we've sought to go our own way instead of listening to his good word, and that God is the giver of life, and so when we reject life, we of course get death. Because of our rebellion, dust we are, and to dust we will return, God says. Even more serious than that, death is not merely just an entry into nothingness. No, it's the eternal conscious punishment of hell. What can save humanity from that? Well, into the valley of death, on the pages of the Bible, rides the Easter story. Over the drumbeat of death, there comes a trumpet sound of a new dawn and an empty tomb. The Easter story is this. There was a man called Jesus, the son of God in human flesh, who never sinned, who never rebelled against God as every other human being has. And this man, he took the sins of others upon himself 
and he died as a substitute for them in the place of sinners under the judgment of God. This man, Jesus, he paid the penalty for the sins of his people on the Roman cross on a hill outside Jerusalem on a Friday about 2,000 years ago. And God promised that Jesus did this so that anyone who puts their trust in him, who believes in him, could have their sins forgiven, could be saved from judgment, and could have eternal life with God. What can save humanity? Well, the Bible clearly says that only Jesus can, that Jesus saves humanity through his death on the cross. And that's an astonishing claim, isn't it? A bold claim, that one man's death can mean salvation for many. And so we ask, how can we be sure? Is it just wishful thinking? How can we know that this promise of salvation is really true? How can we have any certainty about that? Luke was a doctor and an historian. And he wrote his account, he tells us in chapter 1, so that we can have certainty about Jesus and about the salvation that he offers to us. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses. He looked at source material from other writers. And he presents his historical record in the pages of his book in such a way that those who will look into its claims will find that it really did happen and that it really is true. This morning, we looked together at one scene towards the end of his story. The hope of humanity in the face of death, the tomb of Jesus Christ. Let's look at it together. Actually, our scene opens up just one step before that, on the late afternoon of that fateful Friday all those years ago. Jesus Christ has made his sacrifice and died on the cross, and his body hangs there. And here's what comes next, chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and, and how his body was laid. And then they returned and repaired spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandments. So we meet our first character, a guy called Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, we're told, is a member of the council. That's the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And he, to readers of Luke, is actually quite a big surprise. Up to now in Luke's story, the Jewish leadership have been opposed to Jesus at every step. In fact, they're the ones who have pushed so hard for his crucifixion. They're enemies. Yet Joseph has not agreed with their course of action. 
He's a good and righteous man. He's been waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he's a believer in Jesus. Until this moment, he's kept quiet about that because he's afraid. But now he can keep quiet no longer. As a wealthy man of influence, he has access to the Roman governor and he uses that access to ask for the body of Jesus. Now, the Romans would normally leave the bodies of crucified victims on the crosses to rot. It was a warning to others who would challenge their authority. So what Joseph does, it's no small thing, is it? He risks the ire of the Roman authorities. He risks his reputation. He's associating with someone thought a criminal. And he risks and probably loses his place on the council for his public action here. But he loves Jesus. And he's seen what Jesus has just done for him. And so he wants to serve him, and he does what he can. And there's real tenderness here, isn't there? He gives the body of Jesus dignity. He wraps him in a linen shroud, and he buries him in his own newly purchased family tomb, cut into the rock. Now, amazingly, this fulfills a a prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, the the great song of uh, the servants of the Lord, verse 9, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now just notice the details that Luke gives us here. He wants us to be certain of what happened. Now sometimes you you hear the accusation from people that perhaps there was confusion around Jesus' death, perhaps mistakes were made, perhaps even trickery, that that either Jesus didn't really die, that perhaps someone else was kind of swapped in uh, at the last minute, or or perhaps the people who went to the tomb and, and found it empty, perhaps they went to the wrong one. But look at what Luke says, that can't be the case. You see, Pilate would never let the body go before checking he was dead. In fact, the other gospel accounts tell us that he did just that by getting someone to pierce Jesus' heart with a spear. And Joseph, who knew Jesus, he gets up close and personal with the body, doesn't he, as he wraps it himself in the grave clothes. Joseph would know for certain that it was Jesus and be certain that he was dead. And the women, the same women who had been with Jesus from the beginning, the same women who had been watching at the cross all day, they saw the body being taken down. No, it was Jesus, all right, no mistaking it. And notice, too, that the the tomb site is clearly marked and located. This is Joseph's. This is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, no less. It's not the mass unmarked grave that criminals were normally thrown in after being on, on crosses. It belongs to this particular man from this particular town, from this particular region. As Luke writes just about 30 years later, there's a fairly good chance that Joseph still lives, or at least that his family does, and you could go and ask them. He's careful to note that there are no other bodies in the tomb, as would often be the case case in family tombs. The body in there is the only body in there, and the women they saw and they noted which tomb it was so they could visit again on the Sunday 
See, there's real accuracy here, isn't there, in Luke's account. Accuracy really unparalleled in, in ancient historical works like this. We can be certain that this happened. But that accuracy to this point, it actually only reinforces the sense of despair at all that has happened. That Jesus certainly died and that Jesus was certainly buried here in this tomb and the day ends like that. Jesus dead and buried, sealed in a tomb and with him dead our hope that he might save humanity dies with him. The tomb is quite literally a dead end. If it's a dead end for Jesus, a perfect man, then it's a dead end for everyone else too. But now comes the most astonishing thing. When the women return to the tomb on the third day in their sort of pre-dawn gloom, On the Sunday morning, they find the tomb vacated. That's our second point. Tomb located, now tomb vacated. Chapter 24, verse 1 to 8. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They weren't expecting a dead body. They went with the spices. They they weren't expecting to find Jesus dead and buried. They thought the tomb was the end of the story. But they too loved Jesus. They're out of their compassion. They did what they could. In In their grief, they went through the funeral rites of their tradition. They took the spices to protect against the nastiness of the decomposition And the stone that sealed the entrance was rolled away and the tomb, the tomb was empty. What's going on? They knew this was the right tomb, but this wasn't right. Perplexing indeed. They need to know what happened here. And so we read verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Angels appeared to them and explained to them with this gentle but glorious joy-filled question. Imagine them, a twinkle in their eye, smiles on their faces. Why do you seek the living among the dead. He is not here, but has risen. They came looking in the wrong place. They expected to find a dead body in that tomb. Of course they did. Dead bodies are what you find in tombs. They don't just walk out of the grave. But this body's no longer there, and that because he's no longer dead. Now what a claim that is. Believable? Well, how could they be sure? How could they be sure without seeing him with their own eyes? How can we, for that matter? So certainty for Luke is built on two main pillars. We've seen this as we've looked over his account uh, over the last few weeks. 
One pillar for our certainty is the accurate historic testimony of the events of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection from eyewitnesses who were there. That's one pillar. But here's the greater pillar, the greater basis that he presents for our confidence, for certainty. The word of God. We've seen that a bit already. What Isaiah prophesied all those years before happened just as predicted. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. What Jesus said would happen repeatedly, months, weeks, and even days before, actually happens just as he said it would. Remember, say the angels, verse 6. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And listen to the response of the women here. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. See, the women are convinced. They become certain about the truth of the resurrection, not by their eyes, but by their ears. Not by what they saw, but when they remembered what they'd heard Jesus say about himself. See, this is another way of saying they believed in the resurrection of Jesus by faith in his word before they saw him with their eyes, which they would later do. And we today find ourselves in a similar situation. We've not seen Jesus' risen body, though we will do one day, but we do have his word. We do have this word. Will we believe it? Luke thinks we can bank our lives on it, just as these women do, but will we? Or will we perhaps doubt that it's true? Now, if you have doubts this morning, you're in good company. This brings us to our third and final section. Chapter 24, verse 9 to 12. The tomb doubted, but then confirmed. So the women, they went expecting a dead body, and they couldn't understand what happened. Uh, when, they, um, when they didn't find it, they needed reminding of what Jesus had said. Now, were the men any better? Well, surely they'd believe, surely they would have expected Jesus to rise. But no, if anything, they're worse. Verse 10. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale and they did not believe them. That word idle tale there, it's it's the word used in in medical books um, for people who are delirious. So these disciples, Jesus' closest friends, the, the people who had heard his teaching day in and day out for three years, these apostles, Luke calls them, the guys who, who would form the leadership of the church, who'd heard Jesus speak about rising from the dead on several occasions, when the women told them, they thought the fumes from the spices had gone to their heads. They didn't believe them. They thought they were off their rockers. They doubted. 
And I'm not sure that we would have reacted any differently, would we? Maybe here this morning, as you hear the news about Jesus' rising from the dead, you're doubting too. Luke expects that. He doesn't tidy up his account, does he? He doesn't write so that everyone comes out of this looking wonderful. If you were, if you were making it up, that's what you'd do. You'd, you'd want the first witnesses of the resurrection to be great examples, but these are people just like us. They don't believe, they're sceptical, and they doubt. They think the people telling them are crazy. But look at what Peter does with his doubt. Look at what Peter did. When he first heard the news of Jesus' resurrection, he ran and saw for himself. He investigated straight away to see if it was true. Exactly the right response to doubt. Go and look for yourself. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooped, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marvelling at what had happened. I mean, this is classic Peter, always the man of impulsive action. He, he runs to the tomb, he ducks uh, under the entrance, and he looks in, and he discovers that the tomb is empty. Well, not quite empty, actually, is it? He notices that the linen cloths are still there, the, the funeral shroud that, that wrapped Jesus' body. You ever noticed that detail before? Why is that important? Do you think, why does Luke include that little bit of information? He doesn't need to, but he does. Why? Well, it says this. Jesus has no more need for them. The clothes of death are discarded. They're left behind. Jesus Christ has done something that no other human has ever done. Death had no hold on him. The grave could not keep him in its grip. He's thrown off its binding, its binding power and left it behind. And this is what that means. If that is true, then all of what Jesus said is true. And more, if he has conquered death, then he has done so not just for himself, but for all who follow him. Now, I have a friend uh, who is a train spotter. Now, it's a surprise that, that train spotters have friends, but they do, um, and I'm one of them. And uh, he would tell you that one of the highlights of steam trains is when they pass through a tunnel. Imagine it, a, a tunnel cut into the mountainside. It, it looks like the train's headed straight to a great wall of rock, but then the engine, it, it enters the tunnel, it plunges at speed into the darkness. The smoke and the steam is pouring out of its funnel behind it. And it chugs through the darkness, and slowly before it, just a pinprick of light appears in the distance, the exit to the tunnel. The light grows, 
slowly at first, but then gets bigger and bigger and bigger before it bursts out into the sunshine again and heads out into the open country. But here's the thing. What's true of the engine is true of the carriages connected to it. Where the engines go, the carriages follow, don't they? The the carriages don't propel themselves, it's the engine that does the work, but they are pulled by its power through the darkness and into the light of day. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. He plunges into the tomb, the darkness of the grave, and then wonderfully he emerges into the light of life on the other side. And if you are connected to him by faith, you will make the same journey. If you trust in him, your sin will be paid for, forgiveness is granted to you. And death, though it looks like a wall, will not be a dead end, merely a momentary tunnel, and you will emerge into the glorious light of eternal life. He will pull you through. What can save humanity from death, from hell? The answer's not what, but who. Jesus Christ, who died for sins, was buried in the tomb, and who rose to life on the third day, and who says to every human being, repent of your sinful rebellion, trust in my death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, and I will pull you through death and into eternal life. Have you trusted in him? Today would be a great day to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we've reflected over this weekend of the great story of Easter, we give you thanks. We thank you for your great plan of salvation, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the tomb is not the end, but that for those who trust in him, they will come through death and into eternal life. O Lord God, we praise you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. That means we can be forgiven. That means our penalty has, has been paid. And which means that one day when we die, that will not be the end, but that we will see uh, the dawn of a new day in your kingdom with you forever. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.